Can you hear me in the back? One way to look at Dharma teaching for me would be summed up in that the world exists in order to set us free. That's why the world is here. Certainly, this is not how we're brought up. And as Karada was saying last night, we're swimming against the tide. The world exists to set us free. Does that mean that all of our Families, wives, husbands, lovers, companions, businesses, all worthless, children. No, quite the contrary. It just it, There is a way of, in the process of living, not only does uh, the quality of our life refine itself and become more fulfilling, happier, freer, uh, but we get free. In fact, you can't separate them. Because people who are enslaved, I mean inwardly, uh, of course are having a difficult time. And of course that difficulty is being um, spread, spread around to all who are in the life and we're in their life and we're all doing it to each other. Um, <clears throat> there's approximately six billion of us on this planet. So six billion egos, six billion egomaniacs. That's amazing that, that the planet isn't worse than it already is. Each one totally wanting for themselves and, and so forth. What I'd like to do uh, this evening is I'd like to start on a big canvas and you might feel, well, this is inappropriate at a retreat. You should stick close to life here on the retreat. And I intend to come very, very close. But I'm going to start what might seem far away. And I hope you see the connection. If we look very simply at the history of the world, as far as we know, uh, the, there have been tremendous advances, tremendous progress has been made in technology, in science, in the accumulation of information, knowledge. Um, extraordinary what's happened and is still happening in medicine, wherever you look. Computers get faster and faster, have more information. Now you can have are they iPods or something. I see everyone in Cambridge walking around. You know, you can have, I don't know, five trillion, so every song and piece of music that was ever composed, folk music, classical music, uh, or if you want, I don't know, I suppose the f entire, every encyclopedia that's ever been written. So we have more and more information, and it's fast. You just Google it, and whoosh, there it is. What do you want to know about? Um, and there's been immense progress. There's no question about that. Um, but in terms of us living together as humans, has there been any progress, really? We still don't seem to know how to live together on this planet with each other. Um, all you have to do is look around. A friend and I, when we were in college, played a game. We blindfolded ourselves, and we'd open up this big history of the world. It was a thick thing, and we'd just stick our finger anywhere, any page, different periods of history, and there's always war, killing, pillage, plumber, rape, uh, rape pillage, uh, all the rest of it. 1400s, 1200, 20, 2000, wherever you look, again, 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 again. So it seems like there is tremendous progress in terms of scientific and technological uh, development and the spin-offs that come from that. Extraordinary. Uh, and yet, um, we as humans remain puny. 
our consciousness is puny, totally undeveloped. Uh, the only I don't think we're worse than the people 5,000 years ago. For the, they seem to be killing each other off as well. But they just did it with bows and arrows and spears. Now we've unleashed power that's unprecedented. And soon everyone will have it. And we can make ourselves miserable. We're already doing it. No one can be happy on this planet. No one. And yet we haven't seemed to be able to learn that. Uh, I w- tonight I want to spend a lot of time on... Um, Carrado's mentioned it. I think I have too. Uh, well, let me go at it this way. Uh, Carrado and I were told before we came up here, and uh, Carrado commented that in reading the suttas of the Buddha... Uh, two themes jump out over and over and over and over again. One is the Buddha constantly talks about skillful living and unskillful living in different ways with different groups of people in different contexts. That's one dominant theme. You can't miss it. That seemed clear. The second one was anicca, impermanence. Things are constantly changing, but changing in ways that are uncertain. Uh, There are a lot of uh, unexpected things happen to us in life. You put these two together, skill in living means we have to learn in a world that's constantly changing and changing in ways that are not scheduled, not necessarily according to our liking. And it doesn't look like the rules are going to change. This lawfulness of incessant change and in ways that, I know, his life is just going to insist on being the way it is. Uh, and so skill in living, of course, if you put those two together, um, that's a real challenge, how to live in a changing world, which it's always been changing. Okay, so let's assume for the moment you feel that what I just said is not outrageous, that uh, wisdom is highly undeveloped. I would use another term, intelligence. I feel we, as humans, human race, we've defined intelligence unintelligently because we've limited it to conceptual intelligence, intellect knowledge. That's one form of intelligence, incredibly valuable. Probably many, if not most, for all I know, all of us earn our living using this mind. And if you're good at it, you get well paid at it, rewarded, famous, could win again a Nobel Prize. It's certainly a skill. There's no question about that. Um, It's intelligent. But what uh, Dharma is saying is that there's an, I don't think it's, uh, I don't know much about other religions. I know a little bit about Buddha Dharma, and I'm not being falsely humble. I, I, I know a little bit about it. Other religions I don't know much about because I hate religion. Sorry, I, hope, I don't mean to offend anyone. Um, can't stand it. I think it's an affliction, one of the worst things that's ever happened. But what I'm talking about is organized religion and what's happened, not the teachings of Jesus or Buddha or whoever you like, uh, which is the most precious uh, thing the human race has. But we don't, what, what happens is it has probably caused more suffering than anything else. We've used it to divide ourselves, separate ourselves, justify killing one another. So I can't stand this stuff. And yet here I am. How did I get here? Beats me. Destino, faith, karma, I don't know, whatever what you like. Um, if we just look at the world, to me, war now is obsolete. I don't mean it from an ethical, moral point of view, which you could say always was, even in bow and arrow spear times. We, we value our life. We're the most precious thing in, in the world to ourselves. But so is everyone else, to themselves. And if we got that, then why would we want to, we know how they feel, because they feel the way we do, at least most of us. We wouldn't want to kill someone because we know how much they treasure their life, and they wouldn't want to kill us. But that is, of course, not how it works. Okay, so, but now we've reached a point, when I'm saying it's obsolete, I don't mean it from an ethical, moral point of view. What I mean is that, practically speaking, if you take a look, it's unskillful. 
It's not working. It can't work. Maybe it never worked. But now the power that's been unleashed is so tremendous. And it has to do with this enormous gap, bigger than Grand Canyon, between a certain kind of intelligence and another kind of intelligence. If you like, wisdom is as good a word as any. Uh, the gap is so enormous that we have all this power and it's in the hands of people who don't know what to do with it. They don't know how to use it correctly. They're doing the best they can. And there's so much, using Buddhist language, so much delusion, so much greed, so much aversion that try as they may, what, conferences, more peace treaties, more pieces of paper signed? Come on. More diplomats exchanging? Limited. We see what happens, nothing. We don't learn from history. We study, this is what I heard in college, we study history so we don't repeat our mistakes. I would say we study history to see that we do re repeat our mistakes. Okay. If we get, so what all the great teachers are saying in all the traditions is to, that the, the notion of intelligence is really rather limited. It, it's not to reject intellectual intelligence. That's not it. That's beautiful, this human capacity to use the mind well. But to expand it, that is, there's um, a place in consciousness which is hearsay. It's a rumor until you actually taste it. In Buddhist language, it's sometimes called original nature, true nature, Buddha nature, nirvana, whatever language you like, uh, the great stillness. That's beyond the reach of thought. Thought simply can't reach it, even though it keeps trying. That's the whole point. And until you taste some of it and see the immense value, call it silence, call it original mind. Uh, the Tibetans have a very nice way of putting it, the cognizing power of emptiness. It says a lot. Cognizing power is a kind of, you know, almost sounds like a computer term. Uh, but compassion, wisdom, it's all in the emptiness. Don't, I don't know how that's so. To me, it's a great mystery. I haven't got a clue, and yet I know what little I've tasted of it has only been extremely beneficial and helped me live. And these teachings and other Dharma teachings and religious teachings that go in the same direction, I believe are designed to help us open up and expand our intelligence so that what we, when we call something intelligent, it's intelligently used. The definition is intelligent. It includes intellectual brilliance, but it also includes another dimension that's everyone's birthright. According to these teachings, it's just a rumor until you taste it. Now, we're here, so it, we're not waiting for accidents to happen. Maybe someday, I don't know, it'll drop from a cloud. Uh, it does seem to happen sometimes. Eckhart Tolle describes how he was suicidally depressed, and then instead of committing suicide, he became enlightened. It's a good choice. <laughs> I like that one. But we have to sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk. So clearly on the world stage, uh, the things that are wrong, uh, you know, we, you all know them as well as better, you know, uh, global warming, uh, wars that are cruel and seem so meaningless. It's like we just keep doing it over and over and over to each other. Um, if you just take the teachings of the Buddha, the Kalesas, the Kalesas, Kleshas in Sanskrit, some of you are from different traditions. Greed, hatred, and delusion. The mind's tendency to want, 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 want. Or to not want, not want, not want, not want. Or confusion. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I think I do. <laughs> and I'm going to behave as if I do, even though I really don't know what's going on. But I'm not going to let anyone else know that because then they won't let me be president. Oh, no, no political. <laughs> Sorry, no politics, no.
So it's our old friend, greed, hatred, and delusion. Not much work done with it. So we, so we know that global warming, we know we're destroying ourselves, but the greedy mind is not a clear mind. It, 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 it nods, yes, we've got to do something about it. I hear these goals being set, and in, uh, and in 25 years we'll have uh, 4% less, and then, in fifth, you know, like, what? Well, because we can't interfere with uh, r- livelihood. People go to college now entirely for right li- to not livelihood. Um, what is it called? To earn a living. Uh, maybe it's called livelihood. Yes. Uh, you, it's a vocational training now. You go to college, university, so you get a, a degree that will pay you better. And not that you learn how to live. It's just you learn how to make money. You learn how to, how to do things. Some of it's creative and wonderful and useful, of course. But then... It's as if it doesn't matter how dangerous the world has become because greed is so powerful that in the face of it, we read the books and we hear CNN and the newspaper, and the, uh, greed is more powerful. Delusion is much more powerful. Okay, let's now skip back to us here at this retreat. It's the same thing. There's a big gap between the way we live, nothing personal, I'm including all of us, that's why we're here, I hope. I'm going to assume if you've taken seven days out of your life during a beautiful summer where you could be in all kinds of lovely places eating whatever food you want, etc., etc., you've come here. I'm assuming that you care about the quality of your life and that I can be as bold as I want to be and push hard. I'm also from Brooklyn. I can't help it. <laughs> Just normal for me. Um... Is it so different? Or is this our ability to live skillfully? Let, let's go into that term because uh, I think Corrado's correct. If any of you have read, read, the, read the Buddha and the original teachings as best as we have, we know the original teachings, over and over and over again the Buddha's talking about actions that are skillful. Uh, what is skillful? Uh, that which is beneficial that is, um, let's just leave it at that, beneficial for, for me and for others, for you and for others. If an action, if it's mental, verbal, physical action, if it's skillful, then that action will be a benefit to you and to others. If it's unskillful, then it will be harmful, it will be afflictive to you and for others. Uh, and the Buddha makes it more precise. Uh, it, uh, what he, what's ideal is that it needs to be skillful for you and for others. So that if something is skillful, it means it's beneficial for you and for those in your life. In a certain way, they don't necessarily go together. But very often they do, because if you improve the quality of your life, that's what you're bringing to the people in your life. We're all putting our signature on everything we do. And we can't deliver it more than we are to the people who are in our life or the activities or the responsibilities that we have. And so a lot of the practice is identifying what's unskillful, unlearning it, uh, cultivating what is skillful, strengthening it. Uh, so it's letting go of that which is harmful, unskillful, cultivating that which is beneficial. Uh, of course, you have to see that. You have to be able to tell the difference. Now, uh, to me, what the Buddha is saying, put it in a slightly different language, is human race, uh, you don't seem to be having too good a time there, down there on planet Earth. That is, uh, you don't seem to know how to live. You don't seem to know how to live together. Let me give you a few hints, for God's sakes. And here's some teachings and some methods and techniques, because it's just not working. And the teachings, to me, are about skill in living. Wisdom is the art of living, skill in living. Let's back off from Dharma for the moment and go to any skill, any art. I'm sure if we went around the room, uh, you all have something that you love to do and that you may earn a living from it, you may not, and that uh, you've been... 
Maybe it's photography. Maybe it's dance. Maybe it's cooking. Uh, it could be anything. Carpentry. Um, meditation. It could be anything. But let's leave that one out for the moment. Um, it's skillful. Uh, that means uh, it's a skill. And let's say it, if it's a skill with hands, uh, uh, carpentry, then you have to know how to work with wood. Uh, you have to know how to use tools properly. And to begin with, you're clumsy and, cru- and crude, and things don't turn out too well. So how does a skill develop? How do you develop a skill and prove it? Uh, through doing something, that skill, putting it into practice, and then watch the outcome. You do something, you cook a meal a certain way, and then you, you see what it tastes like. Uh, you take a certain photograph, and then you look at it, mm, I didn't have the light quite right. Um, a cup of tea. I happen to have an interest in, in tea. Uh, how to make a good cup of tea takes quite a while. You need the leaves, the right temperature. Green tea needs a certain temperature. Other kinds of tea need a different temperature. Uh, the, the quality of the water, how long to boil. You know, it's a whole bunch of stuff. And you experiment. Finally, mm, a good cup of tea. When you look at it closely, you see the soil had to be good. It had to be picked at the right time. Ideally, young leaves, healthier, more uh, nutrients. Now everyone is running after green tea. They heard it's healthy. So it's a skill, and you can refine it forever. Any, any of these skills. So we know what that is. Okay. This is a quote I read in every retreat. So some of you who have been coming to these retreats, put in your iPod right now and listen to your favorite music or because you've heard it before. But my question, well, you'll see why I give it. It's a quote by a great Japanese artist named Hokusai. He's very well known for 100 views of Mount Fuji. And if you look at the picture, not, if you don't look at it carefully, it's all about something else, people crossing a bridge or strolling. Or the, but then you see, it's a, you see a slight... Mount Fuji from this angle, from that angle, etc. Here's what this gentleman had to say a long time ago. From the age of six, I had a mania for drawing the form of things. By the time I was 50, I had published an infinity of designs. But all I have produced before the age of 70 is not worth taking into account. At 73, I've learned a little bit about the real structure of nature, of animals, plants, trees, birds, fishes, and insects. In consequence, when I am 80, I shall have made still more progress. At 90, I shall penetrate the mystery of things. At 100, I shall certainly have reached a marvelous stage. And when I'm 110, everything I do, be it a dot or a line, will be alive. I beg those who live as long as I to see if I do not keep my word. Written at the age of 75 by me, Hokusai today, Guako Rojun, the old man mad about drawing. Okay. He loved this. He did it because he loved it. Now, what if we loved the art of living? Wouldn't that be great? We don't, it's not, we're not brought up that way. Did anyone bring you up and say, I want you to, I don't care what you do, uh, Sonny, whether you become a doctor or uh, clean the streets, I want you to learn the art of living. That's the most important thing. Anyone have a parent who did that? No one. Hmm. Of course not. Uh, so the human race is doing the best it can, but it, everything is an art, but the art of living is not considered an art. And to me, what Dharma is, what the Buddha is saying is, a skill is an art, and the skill the, is, that's being pointed at is skill in mind, because the skill in living comes from the mind. Uh, two ways in which you develop in skill, one is by doing it, putting it into practice, and then watching the outcome, the result, and then you make mistakes. It's not so good, and it's the same in living. The other is you spend time either alive with people who are alive or as best you can with masters, people who've mastered the particular skill, other people who have mastered a certain skill. 
And those are the two main ways that a skill unfolds. We keep doing it, and we pay close attention to the results that come out of the doing, and little by little, we start to learn and refine our ability to draw a line, as Hokusai points out, how to cook a better meal, how to make a better cup of tea, how to be a better doctor, how to, whatever it is you do. Uh, but what wisdom is about is the art of living, skill in living, and that's what, to me, to me the Buddha is talking about, again and again and again. And that's not new. The Greeks talked about it too. Know thyself. It's in every university, on the top of one building, at least every campus I visit. But you don't see long lines of people queuing up to, to know, them, know themselves. If there were, the world wouldn't look this way. We're not that interested. We're interested in what's going on out there. And what the Buddha is doing is saying, there was one monastery, it was a great sign when you would come to it. I think, this was, yeah, this was in Japan. And it said, hey, you there, what are you gawking at? Don't you realize this is about you? Uh, we should have that here. It's about you. Sometimes I, you know, on retreats, it's just you, human beings. We're doing the walking meditation. So we're seeing how the other person is dressed. He's kind of cute, you know, walking. <laughs> maybe at the end of the retreat, uh, see what, maybe let's see what happens, you know. <laughs> okay. Um, what I'm trying to say is, wouldn't it be nice if our education included, at least for some of us, the art of living, skill in living, as something really worthwhile? Now, it does exist and has existed within religions, the monastic system. And there have been people who have, who have considered this the most important thing. The art that is the living, the quality of our consciousness uh, the most dramatic example I know is when I was in Korea. And the, those, you, you can put your, is it iPods that has all those songs or is it something else? It is? What? Yeah. yeah. Plug in again because you heard this one too. Okay. Uh, he was illiterate. Byokjo Sunim. Illiterate. And there were three of us there, all highly educated with big degrees, three Americans. We were the first Americans to practice at Sudoksa Monastery, way up in the mountains in Korea. And we tried to explain to him one day that the world is round, that it's not flat. And he looked at us, and he just laughed. Of course it's not. It's gotta, how could it be round? How could everything, you know, it was sort of medieval. You know, we gave him high school science, you know, that uh, it won't fall off, gravity. You know, the, we went around and around, and he looked at us, and finally, we, no one got anywhere. We couldn't get anywhere with each other. Finally, he laughed and he said, okay, okay, I'm just an, uh, an old, illiterate peasant monk. I don't, you are all smart and educated. And you're probably right, the world's round and I just can't figure that out. He said, but um, knowing that, has it made you happier? <laughs> Duh. I mean, we were there thousands of miles to learn what he knew. He didn't come to, to Cambridge to try to find out what we knew. He was perfectly happy living on his mountain. Now, but something different has happened, it seems to me, and I don't know if it'll last. may or it may not. I'm open. What else can I be? What else can any of us be? It seemed like this was reserved for only a small number of people, mystics, people who go off to caves, mountains, drop out of life altogether, uh, and there's a long history in every religion of that. Maybe it has to be that way. Maybe just most of us just don't care enough about wising up, about learning how to live, and we just, generation after generation, just beat ourselves up and beat each other up and just keep doing it and doing it and not learning and doing it and having optimism, signing peace treaties, and then just doing it again and again, the world, the war to end all wars, right? And, you know, it just goes on and on and on. But maybe not. Like what seems to be happening in the modern world is there's a lot of energy among lay people, us here, who have families or if you, or, or they're in families. Either they want to get out of them or they want to get into them or, you know, you're in relationships, want to get in or out, have jobs, want to go to school, get out of school, you know, but we're all involved. This is, and there's energy, and there's more enough leisure. Uh, and some of us are quite serious. And I would, I'm going to include us, all of us here. 
Now, the monastic tradition is set up to do this. To, it's a strategy to me to maximize the possibility of people going deep inside. Do most monks do that? Not in my experience. Do some? Yeah. Yeah, they really use the system as it's intended to be used. So the ball is in our court in this sense. But it seems to me we need to learn uh, how to de- we need to develop a practice that's uniquely appropriate for our life situation. Our life is exactly this way on a planet that's exactly the way it is. And you are exactly the way you are. You have a certain body, you're a certain age, a certain health condition, certain job situation, certain family life. This is it. Same for me. That's our world. You have your world, I have mine. Uh, And then we have this mind making up imaginary worlds. You know, horrible ones that that are waiting for us or fantastic ones that are waiting for us. Then we drop back into the past, the good old days, Maybe. I don't know if they weren't that good. Or just the bad old days, just where we got wounded over and over and over, reliving that. Meantime, there's only now. That's all there is. Hey, um, we need a practice. Uh, the monastic life, certainly in Buddhism, seems designed. Yeah, there are a number of things that are required. Celibacy. You don't marry. You don't have... It's, and that's, a, that's an approach and a strategy that can work if you're appropriate for it. As I look around here, there are a few monks here, but most of us are not. And what I see happening is we try to imitate the monastic model and we become neither monks we, nor really lay people. We're kind of neither here nor there. I, in Yiddish, it's called nishtayin and nishtayer. You know, we're sort of like, I'm not a lay person, and I'm not a monk. I'm sort of, I don't know what I am, you know, but in, out, in, out, in, out. Um, and we judge ourselves from a monastic point of view. So how can we come out looking good? And so we then do things like we project everything onto the monks. When a monk comes, oh, how much is one plus? This, I've seen this in front of the Dalai Lama. I'm exaggerating. And I love the Dalai Lama. Your holiness, how much is one plus one, uh, two? Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> you know, isn't the Dalai Lama wonderful? One plus one equals two. <laughs> and he's saying, hey, I'm just a human being. Stop it. And we just do more of it. Because then we make him into something he isn't, and then we can identify with it, and we don't have to do any work. Just have a picture of him over there and on the dashboard, save Tibet. You know, how about save yourself? He can't do that for us. He can't do it for us. He tells us that. He's encouraging us to take charge of our own life. The Buddha loved questions that came from suffering and pain. There were a lot of questions he didn't answer. He felt they don't lead to the end of suffering. I would be doing the person a disservice. Just get into idle, philosophic, ontological discussions that go nowhere. They're good for coffee houses or when you're courting. But, <laughs> not, but they do not end. Leaves, they don't take us out of suffering. So the Buddha was extremely practical. And what I'm suggesting is, so what does that have to do with our life here? When is he going to get to the point, for God's sakes? I got to the point. But let's, make, let's get it even closer to home. Typically on retreats, all the retreats I've been in, it's not uniquely Theravada, it's same in Zen, same in, I haven't done much Tibetan Buddhism, but what little I've done, is a retreat is a special environment. There's no question about that, and that's what makes it, pre- it precious. But then a language springs up about uh, the real world. The real world's out there. Well, what is this world? Is this a fake world? Uh, there are challenges here that you don't face out there. You know, sitting and walking, maintaining silence, some of the things that come up here, because we don't have as many escapes, it's not necessarily easy. And you know that. So this is a sl- there's only life, as far as I can tell. Life at IMS, life in a monastery, life in business, there's just life wherever you look. Well, uh, that's daily life out there, and this is spiritual practice. All I see is daily life wherever I look. 
Don't we go to the toilet here? Don't we dress and undress, wash ourselves? Don't we eat? Don't we? And is the, well, but there's no relationship here. There isn't. Maybe we don't talk to each other. But there's a lot going on in terms of relationship. Uh, in the in Sudaksa Monastery in Korea, they had a nice phrase: If you want to peel a bunch of potatoes, you can peel each potato one at a time. It takes forever. Well, you can throw all the potatoes together and shake the basket, and they all peel each other. Now, when we, when we talk about the Sangha, it's always very, you know, romantic, poetic. Isn't the Sangha great? You know, it's just wonderful. All of us practicing together, except that guy who doesn't, he wears two different sweat socks, and, you know, and his posture is terrible. And uh, so it is great, but it's also very, very human, and we do rub each other the wrong way. And in some of the groups, you've already acknowledged it. Okay, so we can use that. There's a daily life here. So what I'm trying to get at is there's just life. And if we had a perspective that valued life, period, then when we're here, we value this. Then the staff, sorry, there are some staff members here. Staff, I don't know if you still do, but used to talk, oh, I'm going into yogi land. That's when you're going to do meditation. Then what do you go back into, not yogi land? Where what, you can just space out and what, go blah, 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 blah. You know, uh, what if we had a way of looking at things that we know what this is very special? Contemplative life is special, but for probably for most, if not all of us, if you're going to live out a lot of your life in retreat centers, that's different. I'm not trying to standardize. I'm not saying how you should live your life. Whatever that life is, live it. If you're a monk or if you're a layperson who's going to not really go back to the, the world that's, as defined out there, then, you have, then what I'm saying may not be as meaningful, but almost all of us go back to people and work and jobs and school. We have to learn how to use that. And typically, relationship is the hard one. Uh, look, I've lived amidst monks. A lot of the jokes are, oh, you know, these poor lay, lay people, they get married, they, they like Ajahn uh, Buddha Dasa would say, there's so much suffering in marriage, and yet lay people jump up and they volunteer for the job, you know, like... Uh, what is it with those people? You know, can't they see what they're getting into? Uh, well, that's functional if you're celibate. That means I ain't missing anything out there. It's just nuts out there, and we have our nice little life here in the monastery. It turns out monasteries are made up of human beings too. There's plenty of craziness in monasteries and rivalries and politics and alignments with the government. and you know, it's just We're all just human beings trying to find some way to live, to learn how to live. So what if we had a perspective that there is just life, so that everything that we do here is valuable? And the art of living, skill in living, is whatever you do, um, if you, the way we learn how to live is by living and making mistakes and learning from it. Let me give you a few examples, and then clearly I'll continue if I don't, you know, if I can, if I, I don't know, next time if there's anything more to say. Uh, let me give you examples from my own life. You can put on those iPods again because you've heard this one. Okay. Uh, play classical music, though, because I'm very sensitive and I can hear if you're playing what's a hip-hop, it kind of gets to my, you know. Um, how do you learn from living? In other words, if skill in living, oh, this is very important because what the Buddha says in an important sutra, the Kalama Sutra, the Kalama were very interesting people. They're saying, to paraphrase, hey Buddha, Karado, I may go a few minutes over, Matthew, just a little bit, not too much. You don't want to do the walking anyway, do you? <laughs> okay. Okay. That was bad. I'll have to pay for that one. Okay. Okay. In the Kalama Sutra, these people are all, uh, they're saying, all these teachers come through and they all have, this is the true way, this is the best way, and the other ways are all, they don't go anywhere. This way is more ancient, this way has got the best teachers, this way is direct, fastest. We're confused. Now you, Buddha, you come into town, now what? You're going to peddle your teaching here and tell us that it, and he doesn't do that. Instead, what he tell he, he to make it brief, 
uh, a balance between your own experience, be a lamp unto yourself, and counsel of the wise. In other words, if it's a skill, we'd be foolish not to, if we have some access, if you want to be a carpenter, and there's a very skilled carpenter who's willing to teach you some things about carpentry, you'd be a fool to not learn that. And then there's some things you learn. But finally, the only way you you can really learn, you start to make something with tools, and it's not so great. So then you learn from that, you cook a meal, you do a dance step, whatever the skill is. Here, the skill is living. It's the art of living. And uh, there are uh, masters of this skill, and some are alive, and a lot of it, a lot of them are not here, but they've left a record for us. And so we read these teachings, and some of them are very helpful and very, very inspiring. And it gets us to do things. But finally, uh, the issue is how to convert knowledge into understanding. Knowledge is one kind of intelligence. It's information. It's, a, it's a, a beautiful teachings. Uh, science, technology, that's knowledge. How do we convert it to understanding? Understanding is when you get it in here. It's yours then. So that, for example, if there's a teaching uh, that impermanence, attachment leads to suffering. You hear that all the time, right? Clinging, suffering, dukkha. Okay. Uh, and it sounds sensible, but it's not really your own yet. It's still the Buddha's. We're just borrowing it from him. It's secondhand. And so Ajahn Chah, when he came through here, he saw we were all in a hurry to let go, because we heard letting go is what it's all about. Okay, uh, we all want to get there fast. We're Americans. You know, I let go of this. I let go of that. I, everyone was letting go of everything, and yet we were still the same goofballs. Okay. What he, and he saw that, and he said, look, don't be in a hurry to let go. He said, start to take a look at when you are holding, and if there is suffering, Test it. Does holding on to something in a changing world, remember that impermanence? That comes in now. If you hold on in a changing world, it's just unintelligent. It's not wise. It doesn't work. It can't work. Okay. Feel that. Oh, when I do this, it's like getting burned in fire. This doesn't work. It's not skillful. It's not beneficial for me, and it's not beneficial for the people in my life. So little by little, we start refining that ability. You don't, the art of living is not, you, you master it, you hear this talk, and now, yep, Larry's right, I'm going to now devote all my life to the art of living, and by the end of the retreat, I'll have it mastered. Uh, there's still death waiting for us. Remember that one? Some of us, you know, we know it's coming, but it's really coming for all of us, even some of you young whippersnappers. Okay, uh, so the the challenges keep coming, and uh, the real teacher is life itself, and the disciples. Uh, we we have to become disciples of life in this sense. Can living teachers, the record of old masters, and sometimes even living ones, can that they be of help? Of course they can. I've been helped. I'm grateful. I learned a lot from people who were more skillful than I was. And on my own, for example, just simply the in and out breath. I could have, with, with all, I have a lot of degrees and at good schools, famous schools. I never in a million years, or if I got, got maybe Einstein and Niels Bohr, all the best, they would never have thought up, you know, if you just sit still and follow the breath, in, out, in, out, in, out, you're going to feel really good. Oh, come on, it's, that gets too simple-minded. Get out of here. So on our own, I don't think, I know personally, I would never come up with it in a million years. Someone told me to do it. Okay, this is the easiest one. Okay, I'll do it. In, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Oh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it feels good. I think I'll do more of it. Not only that, start saying, look at what my mind is doing over and over and over. I'm going to tell my boss off Monday when I get to work. No one treats me that way. I'm going to tell my boss over Tell them already. Get it over with. You've been saying that for 25 years. Stop, you know, tell the guy off or quit. Okay. So there's help. There are teachings. There are approaches. There are teachers. So it's a balance. But finally, each one of us, uh, you don't really, when it comes to inner work, 
the skill here is skill in dharma. And dharma means, on one level, teaching. The other is quality of mind. And so that, let's say somebody comes and they're supposed to be a master. Okay, let's give that person the benefit of the doubt. But we can't really know someone else's mind. We can make some inferences from how they behave, how they look. We may be wrong. Some, very often we are wrong. We project too much onto them. So that finally, uh, the buck stops with us. We're responsible for our own life. There is help, but finally, we don't. You, what the Buddha is saying is don't give absolute authority over to something because it's ancient, because you, because you, you think your teacher is wonderful, or as I had a teacher from India who uh, he was very good on this, and he said, listen, all the gurus were coming from India at the time. They seemed to have slowed down a bit. Maybe the word is out. I don't know. And they were just pouring in. He said, the longer the beard, the bigger the fake. You know? <laughs> and he had a long beard. Uh, Swami Satchitananda. No, no, this is Chinmayananda. Great man. Very, very, uh, you know, open. Um, let me just, so that the wisdom is the art of living. You learn it in the process of living. A lot of the tools we need to see clearly, at first we have to do the best we can. We take the advice of elders, and that doesn't mean anyone, forget about their age, who's more skilled at it than we are. Why, why wouldn't we want to be, receive help from that? But finally, we have to keep doing it and refining it and making mistakes. The real question is, do you learn from your mistakes? Do you learn from your suffering? Suffering in and of itself is not a noble truth. But it's a doorway to liberation only if you use the suffering to go beyond suffering. Okay? And it's all here in the teachings. Okay? Let me give you a simple example. Today, one happened in, in our group. Uh, I come out not looking so good. And then I'll give you, I'll give you a couple. But I don't come out looking good in either of them. Okay? Or in another way, very good. Like, oh, he's so humble and willing to admit his faults. And then your imagination will be even worse than it is now. Maybe you don't have any. That would be better off. Okay. There's an exchange. Some, we're going around in a group this morning, and someone asks a question. Uh, st- I, I sometimes say, uh, what's your yogi job? Because I want to find out. Are, are you bringing practice into your yogi job? And so I ask the person that. And the person says, oh, I'm not, it, the per- it's not, I'm not quoting it exactly. Oh, I'm a dishwasher. And I took it to be bad news, negative. In other words, oh, I got stuck with this awful job. And I started to pursue that. And she, and she corrected me. She said, no, I really like it very much. And immediately I saw what my mind did. I, in four years of college, I worked as a dishwasher through summers to make money to go to school. And I hated it, but I did it to get the money to go to school so that I could then get degrees, quit, and come here. Uh, at any rate, and I realized what, that I had a bad association with dishwashing, and then when I heard her question, I wasn't seeing her or really listening to her, because my mind, that conditioning from my life, jumped out ahead of me and got in front of her, and it went in through this ear, and it came in through the filter of dishwashing, no good, bad, and she corrected it, and a light bulb went off. That's what learning is. That's the, uh, oh, wow. And you read this in books over and over again. But when you see it in yourself, first-hand learning, it's inspiring. It gives you energy when you learn about that. Last one. We won't be, t- this one gets a little bit deeper. A lot deeper, actually. <clears throat> My mother was dying. She was ni- 90 years old. And she had paralysis the only thing that really moved was her, um, her right arm. Uh, she was in a hospital. Her brain worked perfectly, but everything else couldn't move. Uh, and the whole family was gathered around her. And I was holding her hand. And we were all there, and her breathing was so belabored. It was so hard. She was struggling so hard to breathe. And what a, you know, Mr. Dharma teacher, what do I do? I give her this Dharma talk about impermanence, you know, uh, the body has served you well, and now it's time to let go. You don't have to hold on, Mom. And the more I give her first-class Dharma teaching, you know, the harder her hand gets. 
And I even made the mistake of saying, it served you for 90 years. Don't tell a woman anything about their age, even if they're 90. Apparently, that never goes away. Okay. In her mind, she's sweet 16. You know, okay. So, uh, she, and finally, I realized, as I saw, I was making her unhappy. But it, on its face, it seemed like it was really wise. It was such good teaching. Every Ajahn this and Roshi that, and, you know, they all said that. How come it's not working? Because she wasn't a meditator. She was my mom. She could care. She didn't know about that stuff. And I shifted into channel metta, loving kindness. And she was a very loving person. When I said that, suddenly her hand relaxed. A smile came on her face. And uh, I said, you know, you've been loving all your life. You have loved so many people. We've all benefited. We love you back. But in the, that was only possible when I saw... See, the, the learning goes on in the middle of the fire of living. When I saw that I wasn't, it wasn't really skillful because it was about our discomfort. We were all so uncomfortable with her belabored breathing. It really didn't have much to do with my mother. It had to do with me, first of all, and I saw my sister. and I, The whole family was like we couldn't bear hearing how hard it was for her to breathe. And uh, that was unskillful. But you, it, it, is, it isn't nice and tidy like in a textbook, a Buddhist textbook, where everything comes out nice and tidy and it's sanitized. Life is bigger and messier. The principles are true, but you still have to learn how to apply it in this situation, in that situation. And the only way you can do that is by paying attention and being able and willing to learn. And that is the skill we're learning. The art of living. Skill is learning to live in ways that are beneficial for us and for others. And to start seeing ways that uh, how we live that don't work. They never have worked. Whether it's the whole planet or it's just little old us. To be continued. Okay. Could we have a few moments of silence? May we continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. And may such clear, direct seeing free us. Okay, some walking, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.